You're listening to the Domecast, where news and observer journalists take a look back and forward in North Carolina politics. Welcome to Domecast. It's the News and Observer's political podcast, and I'm Jordan Schrader, here with Don Vaughn, Will Doran, Dan Kane, and on the phone from D.C., Brian Murphy. Uh, we have a lot to talk about, including paid parental leave for state employees, who gets it and who doesn't, uh, the latest on the budget negotiations, or lack thereof, and how much it's costing to keep legislators in session all this time, and a new Trump nominee for judge in Eastern North Carolina. Um, but let's start with Dan, uh, who wrote about Mark Meadows this week. Um, Mark Meadows is the uh, congressman from out in far western North Carolina. And um, you found out that Meadows didn't pay taxes on a piece of property that he owns out in the other side of the state, in Eastern North Carolina. Yeah, it's kind of interesting. It, I mean, this actually uh, comes from a, a Democrat activist out in the uh, San Francisco area. She she goes around and just kind of checks into different candidates and elected officials and, and kind of backgrounds them and comes up with some interesting things. And, and she told me about this and, and I went and checked it out. It was it turned out to be true. Uh, you know, a company that you know, uh, Mark Meadows has, has had since, uh, I think 2007, or at least, uh, at least he's listed as a manager since then, um, had bought uh, roughly about 83 acres over the last, um, maybe about 10 years or so in Bertie County, um, which is, you know, got a few hundred miles away from his district. Uh, and, um, in 2013, you know, they stopped, um, they just weren't paying the bills, the tax bills. And, uh, uh, right now it's come up to about $6,200. The property's worth about 85000 And, you know, when I asked, uh, his staff about it, basically they were told, they kind of, in a way, they were sort of kind of thank me a little bit. It's like, we, oh, we didn't know the bills were going to a different address, you know, an old address. So we're going to take care of it right away. I'm sure they're very appreciative that you brought this up. <laughs> yes. Yeah. Well, they, you know, they, they, they seem so. So anyhow, um, and, and I've seen, I don't know that it's the bills have cleared yet with Bertie County, but I do notice that the old address has been removed and a new address has been put in there. So looks like they're on the way to getting it taken care of. Uh, and, you know, we decided to report it because, you know, he's, you know, Mark's an elected official and, and, uh, I think, you know, we want people to know whether or not, uh, they're keeping up with their taxes like, like we all have to. So, uh, that's the story. There's also an interesting question of whether he's supposed to disclose this land on some kind of financial reporting, right? Yes, that's true. Uh, you know, members of Congress, uh, they have uh, um, financial disclosure statements they're supposed to do each year. Uh, that includes, uh, you know, I mean, it does uh, include their property, uh, you know, includes their, you know, it includes like where they invest their, you know, their money. And, and so, um, uh, it's not on there from what we could see and you know why that's the case. We don't know. I, you know, I did ask that. I, I did not get a response to that question. Um, the company itself is listed on the disclosure reports, but it's disclosed, but, but it's characterized as, um, you know, having property in Sapphire that's, that's listed as a family home. So, um, you know, there's a question there about why this is not on there. It's possible that maybe it doesn't need to be um, because, you know, the ethics laws are basically intended to 
help see things like, you know, investments and, and where conflicts of interest might emerge. So, um, you know, I guess obviously the ethics committee, you know, gets a hold of our story and, and sees a reason to ask, um, you know, uh, they will, and maybe we'll see some clarification on, uh, on his uh, ethics uh, or his uh, financial disclosures. Okay. Um, Don, you wrote this week about uh, paid parental leave. And um, a while back, we had a story that said that Governor Cooper um, was issuing an order requiring paid parental leave for um, state employees, allowing that um, for when they, uh, when either they have a baby or um, adopt uh, a child. Um, and that applied to his state agencies. And so uh, this week or late last week, I guess, we learned that some other agencies were going to be following suit, but, but not all of them, right? No, it was opt-in. Frankly, I was surprised that there wasn't already paid leave. They do have other kinds of leave, uh, which we'll talk to, I think, labor or another agency about why uh, they don't. They they didn't want to include this because there is other leave that you can kind of cobble together, but it's not paid parental leave. So those that said yes were Office of Administrative Hearings, Officer Commissioner Banks, maybe things you aren't always aware of, Office of the State Auditor, State Controller, but the big ones are Department of Public Instruction and Agriculture, uh, Secretary of State Office. Uh, Those who said no include Department of Labor and Office of the State Treasurer, and then others are still deciding, which includes a really big one, the UNC system. And the Community College System Office at first said, uh, or on the release we got from human resources was that they were, and now it's they're still thinking about it. So I don't think it's a completely done deal as far as who gets it and who doesn't, but obviously this affects um, a huge number of state employees because they're thousands of parents. So if you're one of the, like I think right now, about 59,000 state employees who now will get this leave starting the first of next month, September 1st, um, yes. what, what, would, what would you get? What can you be eligible So most of them get eight weeks paid leave. Others get four weeks. And the leave amount is 100% of the employee's regular pay, which depending on some private companies leave, it's maybe just a percentage or a percentage for a few weeks and then nothing. And um, it's something that all parents think about uh, because you do need that time. I mean, the physical recovery of of bringing a person into the world for the the birth mother, but of course, um, adoptive parents, foster parents, need that time um, where you're where you're not at work um, and then setting up everything with the child care once you do that. This is probably a, a good time to uh, uh, segue into the fact that we have a, uh, a new um, baby joining us on the on the political team. Uh, our colleague Andy Spey, who's not with us this week, is a new dad. So I hope you'll join us in uh, in congratulating uh, Andy and his wife in uh, bringing little Theo into the world. We'll be assigning Theo's story soon. And maybe I'm jumping the gun. Maybe Theo was going to be headliner of the week, but uh, um, I thought it would be pretty safe to, to mention that. Um, so uh, the other thing you've been covering this week, Don, is, uh, again, the budget. And yes. um, it's pretty much in action on the budget. But uh, you looked at an interesting angle of all this, which is how much is it costing to keep lawmakers in Raleigh during this time. So uh, what did you find out? Right. The lawmakers that are actually complaining about it are the Democrats, um, because, of course, part of it is scheduling for themselves. And the Republicans are saying, we're, you know, we're still working and this is what the cost is. 
So um, I've talked to the controller for the General Assembly, and in addition to what it just costs to keep the building running and everybody working there, um, it's, like it's $42,000 a day for um, just sitting there in session. And that's salaries, office supplies, electricity, everything like that. They're year-round employees who are salary, so it doesn't matter if they're in session or not. The cafeteria workers are employees, the sergeants of arms, uh, the lawmakers themselves get a pretty small annual salary, and when they're in session, they get $104 per diem uh, per day. So that's meals and lodging, and it's seven days a week. So it's a, a decent amount of money, a lot more than uh, some people that work in North Carolina make. And this uh, is for a session that usually is Monday night through Thursday, right? Yes, and they are paid um, their reimbursed mileage, 29 cents a mile um, weekly. So they can take one round trip home. Uh, if they take more, then they don't get the money. If they don't go, they still get the money. Um, and it's just automatic. So they don't, they're not filing expense reports like in some other jobs. You just get this um, seven days a week and then the, the mileage once a week. So the complaints are the longer that they're in session beyond a normal time frame is that's extra money that's being paid out, um, that's costing to run the building. It's not the only time that the, um, oh, this is mostly related to the budget standoff. They're still working, but they're not doing a lot of things like they would say in April where it's days full of committee meetings and floor sessions. So it's just a little bit here and there. And the budget veto override vote is on the House calendar, so they'll be in session. Maybe the session is 15 minutes. I think on Monday it was 17 minutes. Uh, so the um, the Republicans need Democrats to vote with them to get the override. So the Democrats are worried that if any of them that are voting to sustain the veto are absent, and those that would vote with the override are there, that they'll lose their opportunity. So that's that's basically what they're griping about. And I think it's important to say, you know, these are uh, this is costing the state 40 some thousand dollars a day. It's not exactly like lawmakers are uh, laughing all the way to the bank. They their their flat their base salary is, I think, under 14 grand. So um, the, the per diem on top of that is is nice, but uh, it's not like they're making huge amounts of, of money in general. Yeah, um, I mean, so. if they're not retired, they have their own jobs and. It introduces the question of what kind of job can you have where you're also a state lawmaker. Right. Um, so that that's a whole other right. problem. When you're when you're paid at that level and you're expected to be there, uh, pretty much on call all the time. What's starting to be a year round job? Um, it seems like it would be pretty hard to have any other kind of job. And then you have to be pretty much independently wealthy or um, retired or you know have some other kind of income, spouse's income or some job that will be glad to, for you to be gone every day, which is an unusual job mm -hmm. to have. Um, as, as someone watching from afar, is there any uh, sense that this is going to end anytime soon? Um, you know, it seems like there are laws in place that allow the agencies to continue with their spending and their funding, but is there any sense that this will end before the summer, before the end of the year, before Christmas? I don't know. At this point, it's a guessing game. As I was writing this story yesterday, you know, Senate Leader Phil Berger's office puts out saying it's been 46 days without a new budget since the veto. And then Governor Cooper also sent out a release. I think they were in like 20 minutes of each other. 
Maybe Cooper was the first one. I don't know what time they pick every day to send them out. They can't even agree what day we're on on the countdowns. Yeah, they're saying, you know, since, you know, Cooper's compromise plan, there hasn't been a counteroffer. But Representative Bell said the counteroffer was the conference budget. So really, they're just, uh, you know, it's a standoff. Like, they're on the other sides of the street waiting for someone to blank, essentially. So I I don't know. For the first few times of the House sessions, I thought... Oh, they'll think they have these votes together and, and maybe this will happen. And then after the, I don't know, it felt like that, like 50, 60, 100 times I was there, I was like, oh, come on. Um, and I think that they are feeling that way too on both sides of the aisle, the Democrats saying just call it or not. And the Republicans who may have been told by some Democrats that they were going to vote with them and then they didn't. Um, and the threats of Bell saying that some of the Democrats that were going to vote where the Republicans were threatened with being primaried and then Democrats saying, no, there are no threats of being primaried. So nobody's really saying what's going on behind the scenes yet. Well, the tone has certainly just been, you know, finger pointing. Oh, clearly, yes. And that (laughs) doesn't give you any idea that they're really close to moving anything. But, you know, with the the Democrats, I mean, healthcare is the number one. That's their number one campaign issue. Yeah. You know, and I don't know, maybe somebody's thinking, all right, we'll just carry this stalemate all the way into next year and Mm -hmm. and run on, you know, and then, you know, run on healthcare. I mean, I don't, you know, you you can't help but wonder if there's some... Thinking along those lines. It's clearly tied to 2020, clearly, Mm -hmm. for the governor, for everybody else, for sure. Yeah, it's just Mm going to be a matter of do they really think that this is the issue that will be like a deciding factor for voters? And Cooper has said, the Republicans say it as Cooper is saying it's Medicaid or nothing, ultimatum. And then Cooper says, I just want a discussion. I didn't say you know, that's it. It's just it has to be part of the negotiation. So whatever tiny bit of gray area there is there as far as what they um, are actually really think and are trying to do. Uh, yeah, we'll, we'll find out. It, and what I'm interested in seeing is what's going to get caught up in this, because, of course, they could pass some little parts of the budget that people can agree on separately. Maybe they would, you know, pass them or pass something else, but then that takes some of the pressure off. So, Or, uh, or laws that weren't going to get passed at all. And mm-hmm. because they're still around, suddenly we have something go- happening in the state that um, never would have even like made it if, it, if, they were, if they weren't dragging it out. But it's not, the last, it's not the first time it's been drug out. It's not going to be the last time. August isn't totally unusual. Um, I mean, it's usually June, sometimes July, but... Um, I don't think we're quite at the point yet of, wow, this is... Yeah, you found it went up to September or October some some years. There's the 1998 Day Before Halloween budget, (laughs) uh, which our colleague Lynn Bonner said was um, there was, a I believe, a surplus they were arguing about and and couldn't decide. So um, we could be talking about this many don't pass in the future. But but the pain that brings people to the to the bargaining table at the federal level when agencies are shut down and people aren't collecting their paychecks is not really happening. Right. If if I'm reading it right, and so there is no pain mechanism to to bring people to the table. Yeah, they 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 passed that a couple of years ago, where it's just last year's budget that rolls over, and they've also passed some stop gaps, you know, to make sure federal funding isn't um, 
isn't compromised. So there isn't a whole lot of incentive other than political pressure, I would say, or pressure from state employees that are ready for their raises, whatever those final raises end up being. All right. Um, the one uh, other thing we should talk about, well, two other things we should talk about before uh, we break for headliner of the week. Um, Will, you wrote about uh, uh, an NC State professor who is in hot water over some tweets uh, that he uh, sent out and um, lost his, uh, his top position at NC State. So what happened? Yeah, not just a professor, the, uh, the Dean of Students and Academic Affairs, Mike Mullen, um, uh, basically at several points in 2018 had sent out some kind of anti-Republican tweets. Um, at one point he was tweeting about kind of he had overheard a meeting um, of some people who he uh, described as rednecks uh, that he said uh, their conversation was making him uncomfortable. Um, and he also had another tweet at one point where he, um, he, re he replied to a, a, a conservative activist named Charlie Kirk um, and told him that, uh, you know, the GOP has become the party of neo-Nazis and the KKK and alt-right crazies. Um, and uh, there were a few others. Those are probably the two, uh, the two that got the most attention of his. Um, like I said, those were all from 2018, but they just kind of got dug up now. A uh, conservative website called The College Fix, which kind of focuses on uh, kind of conservative slant on campus news around the country, uh, compiled the tweets and wrote about them. And uh, within a couple hours, uh, he had announced that he was uh, stepping down from being the dean um, and the vice chancellor and would just be returning to his job as a professor in the crop sciences department. Um, so, you know, kind of, uh, you know, have seen some outrage on both sides of this. Uh, you know, Republican students saying, you know, here's the guy who's supposed to be the dean of students who's kind of creating this, you know, what they say is a hostile or alienating environment for conservative students on campus. Obviously, NC State, you know, the student body there probably tends to be a little bit more conservative than someplace like UNC Chapel Hill because it is, you know, the agricultural school. It's the farming school. And, um, and actually, it was his tweet about rednecks that seemed like it got even more criticism than his tweet about Nazis. Uh, the student paper, The Technician, uh, published an op-ed that said, you know, when you have administrators making fun of rednecks, you're making fun of a lot of kids who go here and the university's history as kind of, you know, a, a school for people from rural areas. Um, and so that that really got um, a lot of anger. And he actually uh, went back and apologized for that one uh, back in 2018 after that, after the student paper wrote about that one. Um, but yeah, it's, it's a big shakeup for the university. I mean, classes start in just a couple of days and, you know, here's one of the guy who is, you know, one, he was a member of the chancellor's cabinet they have there. Basically the, the leadership at NC state goes, you know, there's chancellor Randy Woodson, and then he has a deputy and then there's about a half dozen deans and vice chancellors. And, uh, you know, Mike Mullen was one of those guys who was in kind of that third tier of university leadership, uh, you know, making almost 300 grand a year, um, you know, and so this is a, a big position for the university to have open, you know, a couple days before classes are supposed to start up again. Um, so we'll see. They haven't announced a replacement form yet. Um, but okay. 300,000 is a lot more than 14,000. Similar thing happened in Carolina, though, too, right? I mean, Winston Crisp, they're, they're, he wasn't even, he like their 
yeah. vice chancellor student life. Yeah. I mean, he made a comment about uh, Silent Sam coming down, and <laughs> and next thing you knew, um, you know, he was out the door. And, and he uh, he recently got hired at uh, USC, uh, where Carol Holt went as well. She yep. uh, it looks like after after he stepped down for yeah, like you said, his his text that he had sent them were kind of in support of the, the Silent Sam protesters, and he left the university. He uh, careful uh, made sure to. Uh, uh, Give him a little landing spot with her out in California he after had, she left as well, following all the same stuff. Yeah, the best Twitter handle was Vice Crispy. Yes, yeah, and I noticed that he did get a vice chancellor's job at USC, so nice. he can keep the Twitter handle of Vice Crispy. Um, <laughs> <laughs> we'll have to change that. But yeah, there's there's been some some upheaval at the kind of the higher levels of universities here, uh, where uh, some yeah, I mean. Liberal progressive views have definitely gotten some of these people in hot water, and you know there's obviously always been criticism from the right that college administrators are too too progressive, too liberal, um, and here we have a couple cases where they've they've gotten in trouble and had to leave their jobs because of that. Are you hearing any defense of these folks, or at least defense of their them their comments as as free speech or something they should be allowed yeah, to do? Yeah, I mean, do? obviously, you know, there's been a lot of chatter on social media about it um, on both sides. You know, people saying good riddance, um, and then people also saying, well, you know, he didn't really say anything that was wrong, in my opinion, and he should be able to say this. And you know, you know, why is the president allowed to lie when and not have any consequences? But you know, this guy gets in trouble, so you know. Like in everything in politics that, you know, people can't really agree. <laughs> well, it's a little riskier these days, too, because you've got a, a Republican legislature and you've got mm -hmm. uh, Republicans uh, pretty much uh, on the board of governors. And um, so, you know, those, that kind of commentary is, you know, probably going to light a fire under you quicker than, than it might have been, you know, just you know, exactly. you know, a decade ago. Yeah, if it's going to maybe, you know, jeopardize some funding or just your general support from state leaders and politicians, then yeah, no, a lot less reason to tolerate things like that. So that, that's kind of where that is. Um, and yeah, it just, it just happened uh, Thursday night. We're recording this Friday, so still pretty new. Like I said, they don't have a replacement name for it yet or anything like that. But and it highlights the dangers of social media in this era where the things that you say on social media never go away and, and they can be dug up years later. Uh, we've seen this across all, all different sorts of uh, professions, professional sports, um, actors and actresses, uh, now academics. Uh, th that Twitter machine never goes away. Except politicians can say whatever they want on Twitter, not necessarily have our professions. <laughs> <laughs> Brian, uh, the last thing we should talk about is Trump's new nominee for judge. And the um, backstory on this one is is maybe as interesting as the nominee. It's been a vacant job for years and years. Uh, it's the longest running vacancy in the federal courts, I believe. Um, so um, before we get to the, the nominee, um, how, how has it happened to be vacant for all these years? Well, you're right. The The spot on the Eastern District of uh, North Carolina for the U.S. District Court has been open since January 1st, 2006. Uh, that's the George W. Bush presidency. Uh, he nominated Thomas Farr uh, for, for that spot. 
the Raleigh lawyer. He, he never got a hearing. Uh, President Obama nominated um, two women. Uh, he actually made three nominations, um, two African-American women. One of them was nominated twice. Uh, they never got a hearing or, or a full vote in the Senate, in large part because Senator Burr um, blocked their nominations. And then Senator Tr- uh, the President Trump, uh, when he took office, nominated Thomas Farrer again twice for this position. And, and it appeared that he was going to get a vote and get confirmed by the Republican-held Senate last year. Uh, but right before his vote, uh, Representative uh, Senator Tim Scott, the only black Republican in the U.S. Senate, um, decided that he could not support Thomas Farr's nomination. This was after some additional reporting by the Washington Post showed his level of complicity in some uh, campaign Attempts by the the Jesse Helms campaign to to perhaps disenfranchise black voters, and now this this has dogged far for for many years, and and was well known before his nomination. Um, but some of the new reporting, I think, Sen- uh, Senator Scott did not feel comfortable voting for him, and so we've all been waiting to see if. Uh, President Trump would nominate Thomas Farr once again. Uh, some conservatives have been trying to convince Senator Scott to change his mind. Um, but uh, this week, um, President Trump has nominated someone different. Uh, UNC law professor Richard Myers to the post uh, nominated him after consultation with both Senator Burr and Senator Tillis. Um, we don't know a whole ton about uh, about Myers at this point. He certainly doesn't have uh, the prof- the the public legacy of, of Thomas Farr, um, but we are looking into you know some of his writings, some of his decisions, um, some of the things that he's put out as a law professor and as a lawyer. Um, but the Eastern District is is a very important um, spot in in the federal cycle, largely because it's never had an African American uh, sit on the bench. Um, that's been a big point of contention for Representative G.K. Butterfield, among others. Um, Myers was born in Jamaica. Uh, Kingston, Jamaica, and lists his uh, race as two or more races on his voter registration card. Um, Senator Burr has said that he would diversify the court. Um, certainly as an immigrant um, to to the United States, he would bring a different perspective. Is uh, an old newspaper writer uh, in at, for the Wilmington newspaper and uh, got two degrees from Wilmington, UNC Wilmington, and they got his law degree from UNC Chapel Hill. So uh, certainly has a, a lot of North Carolina ties. And I'm sure as the Senate gets closer to uh, considering his nomination when they get back from their August recess, uh, okay. we'll learn a lot more about Richard Myers. All right. Well, I think that's uh, it for the main portion of the show here. Let's take a quick break and come back with uh, Domecast. And uh, oh, before I forget, uh, let me put in a quick plug for our uh, home briefing. I mentioned this last time. Uh, if you want to get our, uh, not only our political podcast, but hear uh, summaries of our other stories, uh, go to newsobserver.com slash listen, and you can get the uh, audio briefing that we put out every weekday morning. Um, you can also get it on your smart speaker, uh, Alexa or uh, Google Home, uh, and you can subscribe on your podcast app. So again, that's newsobserver.com slash listen. We'll be right back with Headliner of the Week. 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 Who's hot? And we're back with everyone's favorite segment, Headliner of the Week. Uh, let's start with... Don Vaughn, what's who's your headliner of the week? Yeah, my headliner of the week is the Durham Committee on the Affairs of Black People, which is a um, I covered Durham for a long time, and they're a 
longtime organization that's this year is their 84th Founders Day. And they um, they advocate for basically every the African-American population in Durham and historically Durham has been uh, about equally white and African-American. And they're also a pretty powerful pack. They make endorsements. They um, also have this annual Founders Day banquet and they get a lot of big names to come. So the reason they're my headliner of the week is because it, their banquet is next Saturday, the 24th, and they have a presidential candidate coming. It's Kamala Harris. They uh, booked her a couple months ago now. And last year they had Melissa Harris Perry. The year before they had Representative Maxine Waters. And so Harris will bring, of course, a lot of attention to the group to Durham. Um, Castro already came to Durham a few months ago, so she won't be the first Democratic um, presidential candidate to come through the Bull City recently. Uh, but the Durham Committee on the Affairs of Black People have been um, a long time important influential group in Durham. And they uh, their profile is raised with uh, the speakers that they get, especially this one next weekend. And I'll be covering that as well, and I'm sure we're talking about it in the future time. Okay. Durham Committee on the Affairs of Black People bringing Kamala Harris to town uh, in the hat for headliner of the week. Will Doran, who's your with incentives. A couple days ago, I uh, covered uh, an announcement by Governor Cooper that the state was paying uh, Xerox about $13 million to create 600 new jobs in Cary, uh, just one, one long line of uh, incentives that the state was given out. Um, we also had some reporting uh, by one of our other colleagues here at the NNO about the state is chasing a huge uh, car plant that we want. Uh, to, we have a site out in Randolph County that people think would be good for a big auto manufacturing place, which would probably be hundreds of millions of dollars of incentives, maybe, if, if that happens. And um, uh, But as I've been writing about this stuff, I've also been hearing complaints uh, from people that incentives aren't really the best use of taxpayer money. And, you know, People have been calling the governor hypocritical because he criticizes Republicans for voting for corporate tax cuts, but then gives, you know, millions of dollars in tax breaks through incentives to these big companies. And they say, well, you know, if we're allowed to give out these incentives, why aren't we allowed to, you know, give further corporate tax cuts? Um, and I think it also kind of, you know, relates to the budget discussion. I mean, you know, if we go a couple of years without a budget here, you know, if we don't get a new budget until 2021, you know, are, are we going to run out of out of money for what has for years long before Cooper was in office been really the state's kind of favorite way of luring new jobs and new companies to North Carolina or convincing existing companies to expand, which is by giving them taxpayer money to to build new offices and hire new workers. Um, so, you know, we'll, we'll see how much of a, you know, pressure, you know, budget or lack of a budget puts on that. But that just, it's been kind of in the news lately. and with the budget and everything that's my headliner you think we'll get apple <laughs> uh i don't think our, so our friend over at wral tyler tyler dukes he keeps writing about this and uh, he's doing a good job of uh keeping up with the fact that they won't release the records on this uh apple project um they say it's still in the works even though apple's long since gone to austin yeah well and they're you know i, I think we have what we have I know we have a data center for Facebook somewhere out in Western North Carolina. I think we might also have an Apple one. That I'm not sure. I, I think you're right. Um, I'm 100% sure, 100 sure of that. So <laughs> maybe that's maybe, 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 maybe another server farm. 
<laughs> or who knows? Maybe we're trying to yeah get them to build a solar farm or something like that, or another data center. Okay. I, I don't know if we're getting any sort of you know HQ two Amazon type deal or Big Apple office, but you never know. Uh, and maybe we don't want that anyway. Um, <laughs> <laughs> all right, incentives in the hat for headliner of the week. Dan Kane, who's your headliner? I'm gonna go with uh, uh, Richard Myers, uh, the the federal judge. Uh, you know. Largely because in this just you know, such a highly charged you know partisan environment, you know he's going to be running some kind of gauntlet, you know, and it'll just be interesting to see you know how that goes and um, you know it, he's clearly right now I mean you know, we're near the controversial candidate that Thomas Farr you know um, was and, and and we'll see whether or not also this, this that maybe this does uh, amount to some sort of a shift to sort of maybe get away so much from the politics and maybe focus more on the, on the experience and the, you know, um, credentials. So I'm, uh, I put him out there. Okay. All right. Richard Myers, the second in the hat for headliner of the week. And last but not least, uh, Brian Murphy, who's your headliner? I'm going with the Rowan County little league softball team, which won the, uh, little league world series, um, earlier this week on ESPN two. Um, always amazing to see a team from North Carolina on that kind of stage. Uh, they scored a couple runs in the first inning and held on to win four to one. I watched it on ESPN too. Nice. All right. Uh, the Rowan County Little League softball team, an unexpected out of left field uh, <laughs> uh, pick from Brian Murphy, but I like it. Um, let's see. This is a tough choice. This is a tough choice. Uh, I'm going to go with Richard Myers. Um, we'll be watching the um, nomination process to see if it, how it goes, and it's hard to imagine it being anywhere near as controversial as, uh, as the FAR nomination, um, but it's a big deal uh, having been empty for, for all these years, and there may finally be a judge in that seat. Uh, so Dan is our winner this week, and that's it for Domecast. Uh, for Don Vaughn, Will Doran, Brian Murphy, and Dan Kane, I'm Jordan Schrader. We'll see you again soon. You've been listening to the Domecast, a production of the News and Observer and the Insider State Government News Service. You can keep up with the conversation by reading Under the Dome in the Daily Print Edition or online at newsobserver.com. The Insider is found online at ncinsider.com. 